This morning, we're continuing our series in Nehemiah, and our scripture reading is Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 47. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Natophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people, on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maseah, Meniamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Azar. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God in the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Nate. Good to be with you this morning. Um, so here's the deal. On November 3rd, 2016, a little after 12 a.m., Michael Martinez of the Cleveland Indians hit a ground ball chopper to Chris Bryant. And Chris Bryant made the throw to Anthony Rizzo, which was the final out of the Cubs' 8-7 win over the Cleveland Indians in Game 7 to end a 108-year-old drought of World Series. 
There is a video, and I know you're all Brewers fans, so y'all don't care about this, but <laughs> there is a video on YouTube outside Wrigley Field, because the game was in Cleveland, and the Cubs fans were all around Wrigley Field, and they all have their phones out, and they're watching this final play, and the final out hits, and there is this eruption of joy. And um, every time I watch it, it still, it still moves me. The joy was, I just haven't seen anything like it. It's amazing. When was the last time you experienced joy? You know, maybe it was 2016. We can talk afterwards, right? We can talk about the Cubs. Uh, or maybe it was um, that first kiss. Or maybe it was, you know, the text that you sent that said, hey, do you want to go out? And the reply was, yes. Or maybe it was you applied for the job and you, you get the letter back. You got the job. Or maybe... Maybe recently it's been in the wake of a little bit of the pandemic kind of, well, I don't want to say ending, but we're, we're in a stretch where it feels different, and you've been able to gather with friends without masks and enjoy an evening around good food and good conversation, and you just, there's just something about it. That's such, such a wonderful experience. Each of us, to some degree, know something about joy, some experience of it. And in Nehemiah 12, uh, there's a moment of unparalleled immense joy. Verse 43, look at what it says here. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem went, was heard far away. I mean, joy. It's mentioned over five times, excuse me, five times this passage. Everyone's involved. It's so loud, it can be heard from far away. Commentators note that this is a level of joy in the Scripture that is, you could say, unparalleled in its intensity. And as we head into one of the final weeks in the book of Nehemiah, and we've been asking each week, what can we learn from this 5th century community, this people of God as they're seeking to live out the purposes of God in their day? And what might it mean for our day? I'll say this, this text says something to us that I think is surprising. Even if you've been around the church for a while, this is surprising. It's simply this, this unparalleled joy that this community experienced is available to all. And uniquely, we're going to see it's found actually in the God of Scripture. That's where it's found. So three things this morning. We're going to see the telos of joy, the path to joy, and then organizing to sustain this joy. So let me pray and we'll, we'll hop in. Father, uh, this morning, uh, just pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our collective 
minds would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the telos of joy. Uh, You know, verse 43, there's a snippet there that's just caught me all week. It says this, it says, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Isn't that unique? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. I don't know, when you consider God and His attributes and who He is and what He's about, um, there's a lot there. But have you ever thought that this is what God is like? That He actually desires for you to experience great joy? Because I would say this, for some of us, like the notion of joy and God, it seems kind of mutually exclusive. Um, I'm an Office fan show uh, fan, and there's like, I, I think some of us think a little bit like God, kind of like Michael Scott, and there's this one um, episode in which Michael Scott has, uh, gets on email surveillance, and he finds out that there's a party happening at Jim's house, and he didn't get invited. Everybody else was invited, but he didn't get invited. And um, Michael's very unaware, like just I mean, he's, he's the boss who bought himself the cup that says world's best boss. I mean, he's that kind of a guy. And so he shows up at the party, uninvited, and the party just dies. You know, it's just like, now the boss is here. It's just done, you know? And I think for some of us, that's, you know, it's kind of like, that's what we think of God. It's like, oh, God shows up. Oh, just stop the party. <clears throat> or for others of us, you know, you might be here... And you might be maybe just curious or skeptical. You're not a Christian. You're exploring Christianity. And you might say, okay, I can get how some religious people, they could maybe find joy in God, but that's kind of for them. And that's not really for everybody. It kind of takes a certain kind of weird person to really find joy in God. Uh, When I was in college, there's this quote that just kind of upended this notion for me by C.S. Lewis. He, He wrote this, He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's remarkable. Lewis is saying, here's your problem. The problem is not that your capacity for joy is so great that God can't satisfy it. Actually, it's the very opposite. We've settled. You know, it's like, could you imagine if someone after the service said, hey, we just met. I want to take you downtown to the tornado room and I want to buy you a great steak. We're going to have an amazing meal. We're going to drop a hundred bones on this. And you said, nah, let's just hit the dollar menu at McDonald's. That's good enough for me. Like, do you, do you understand what just happened there? And yet, here's the thing. What, what Scripture is saying from cover to cover is that we go to other things for this. We go to relationships, career, family, wealth, or power, all things not inherently bad in them of themselves. But when they become the place where we tap life and meaning and significance, the weight can't be held. 
The joy can't be sustained. We settle. You see, verse 43 is clear. It's God who makes them rejoice with great joy. And what's interesting about the context is, verse 40, it's where they are. In verse 40, the people of God are in the house of God, the temple. In other words, they're in the presence of God. Listen, this is kind of remarkable, but like, God is making them rejoice with great joy by doing what? Giving them his presence. Actually, um, Psalm 1611 um, says it very clearly. The psalmist writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your pleasures, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, the scriptures are saying that unparalleled joy are not something to be found outside of God, but rather to be found in Him and in His presence. And so when I say the, the telos of joy, telos means kind of the, the chief end, why something is made, why it functions. You know, the Westminster Confession Statement of Faith in the 1600s, summarizing the telos, the chief end of humanity, puts it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In our, in our passage this morning, it's a moment in the life of the people of God in which they are experiencing it. They're experiencing the joy in the very presence of God. And here's kind of what, you know, this is where this passage begins to creep into our lives. The question is, will we settle for a joy that is small and contracted? Or will we pursue this rapturous, unparalleled joy found in God. Well, if we're going to pursue it, what's the path to it? What's the path to this joy? You know, this moment, we, we focused on this moment of unparalleled joy by this community, but it began a long time before this moment. This was a, a moment of joyous dedication of what God had done, of bringing them from exile to homecoming into his presence. So just rewind 150 years earlier, this southern portion of Israel, which included this city, Jerusalem, was overtaken. The people were sent into exile because of Babylon. And think for a moment, right now, this week, you see the images in Ukraine. You see the, the millions leaving Ukraine because Putin has come in and is doing his thing, and they're dispersed. This is what happened to God's people 150 years before that moment. Babylon had come in and had overtaken them and dispersed them. 
And the scriptures are clear. The prophet said the reason that happened was because they'd been unfaithful to God. They had rebelled against their God. Yet here's the deal. In the midst of all of that, God had made a promise. He made a promise He was going to restore them. He made a promise He was going to rescue them and bring them back. And approximately 60, 70 years later, after this exile, God raises up a man, Zerubbabel, and to lead a small group of exiles back to Jerusalem. That's Ezra chapters 1 to 6. And they restore the temple. They rebuild the temple. And then 60 years after that, Ezra goes back with another wave of returnees, and he restores the instruction of God's Word for God's people. And then 13 years after that, it's Nehemiah chapter 1, where we were several weeks ago. You remember Nehemiah gets word that the walls are in shambles, that things are not well in the city, and his heart breaks. And he fasts and he prays and he uses his position, his access to the king, the most powerful man in the universe, in the world at that time. And he, he says, will you give me permission? Will you give me resources? And because God is gracious, he moves the heart of this king and he provides all that he needs. And so Nehemiah returns and we've seen how God raises up everyone in that, in that part to be a part of this rebuild project. And yet in the midst of it, there is opposition both externally and internally. And yet Nehemiah perseveres. And in chapter 6, the walls are rebuilt. And then we saw after that how the instruction of God's Word once again comes central. And they repent. And then last week we saw how they covenant, they make a commitment exclusively to this God. And now they're at this moment. Think about it. Think about that journey. Is there any reason why they would not be just overflowing with joy? And so in verses 27 to 30, they're making preparations for this great dedication. They're gathering Levites and singers to gather in Jerusalem. It says with singing and cymbals and harps and lyres, this is going to be a great production, a great celebration. And then in verses 31 to 39, we get this list of individuals who make up two choirs, one by Ezra, led by Ezra, one by Nehemiah, one starts on the south, one starts on the north part of the city, and they walk around. They walk around on the walls. Do you remember chapter 4? Chapter 4, people were mocking them for these walls. There's no way even foxes could stand on these walls. They're going to fall, and yet these people are walking on the walls. And they're singing, and they're celebrating, and they all converge on the house of God in verse 40. And they sing. Their path to joy is very simple. It's a return from exile because of their sin to a homecoming to God's presence because of his faithfulness to his promises. That's why they're filled with joy. And here's what's interesting. That path to joy is only partially fulfilled in their day. Next week, just, you know, uh, to get ahead, it, Nehemiah ends on a downer. <laughs> like, this is not like your 80s sitcom where, like, things get worked out in 30 minutes and everything's happy. Uh, Nehemiah is much more like a reality TV show, you know? Uh, it's a downer. And one of the things we realize about the book of Nehemiah is this isn't it yet. 
This homecoming into God's presence, a return from exile, it's only partially fulfilled. But here's the point. We've always said this along the way, that you've got to understand this story in light of the big story of Scripture. That actually the return of exile because of sin to homecoming to God's presence actually is what God calls the story of what He's up to in this world. Ultimately, hundreds of years later, Jesus would enter this city. And the author of Hebrews would write this about what happened with Jesus' work on the cross. He says this in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The curtain mentioned in this passage is talking about the curtain that separated the people from God's presence in the temple. And only one time a year, one priest could go in. He had to do an elaborate ceremony of cleansing himself. And now we see the author of Hebrews saying, that was a shadow pointing to the reality of Jesus. Jesus is the curtain. Jesus is the way into the access into God's presence. And we see also that Jesus is actually the great high priest. He's the one who actually makes a way, not by the offering of bulls and calves, but by offering his own blood to deal with our sins, as Lewis would say, because all of us invent some sort of happiness for ourselves outside of God, apart from God. You see, here's the deal. Their path to joy was partial, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus that all of us, can be rescued from our own exile because of our sin and brought back to a homecoming in God's presence. And it's all found in the gospel. This path to joy, beginning in exile because of sin, bringing into God's presence through the faithfulness of God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. And the story is not done yet. You know, the end of the story is in Revelation. And what do we see there? In Revelation 5, we see a multicultural family gathering around a throne, singing this to Jesus, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And in Revelation 21, what do we see? It's this, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In other words, it's God's people in God's presence enjoying God forever. That's the story. And that simply means this. If you're not a Christian, it means the path to this joy is found in Christ. It's found through Christ. You are in need of rescuing because of your sin. And here's the deal. Just as they remembered God's faithfulness, so we remember God's faithfulness in Christ and what he has done. So it's not you cleaning yourself up. It's actually God doing something for you that you can't do for yourself and receiving that as a gift of faith. But if you're a Christian, let me say this. 
It means this, the path to your joy today chiefly comes from speaking the truth of the gospel to one another and preaching the gospel to yourself. Let me just apply this a couple different ways. Um, some, of, some of you this morning, you are caught in what I would just say is self-loathing. You, um, uh, there's a sense in which you're extremely critical of yourself. Nothing you do is good enough. You're unworthy. There's this, um, there's this scene in Sherlock Holmes, the, it's the British series. There's a number of Sherlock Holmes, right? But the British series in which Benjamin Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch, I was going to say that wrong, I knew it every time. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, he plays Sherlock Holmes. He's going to be shot. And Watson's wife steps in the way and saves Sherlock. She dies, he lives. And later on, he's reflecting on this. And Sherlock says something like, he says this, he says, in saving my life, she conferred a value on it. Sherlock is saying, because she offered her, her life for my life, it means that I matter. That he's valuable. And friends, consider 2 Corinthians 5.14 for a moment. Paul writes, says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. In other words, let me put it this way. If you're dealing with self-loathing, here's the gospel. Do you know your value? God himself has come in the personal work of Christ and has died for you. You matter to him. In other words, in self-loathing, you get your eyes off of yourself onto Christ and the gospel. That's the key. You work it into your life. That's the path to joy out of self-loathing. Or some of you, you're, you're walking through a really hard season of suffering. Maybe it's an illness, maybe a broken relationship, maybe a desire for a good thing, like a spouse or kids that just has gone unmet. And it's one of those things where you're just disoriented, maybe angry at God, maybe angry at yourself. You need the gospel. And let me tell you, this is how it works its way out. It dislodges two lies that are most often believed. You see, when we go through times of suffering, one of the chief lies is this for a Christian is, God doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. But here's the point. In the gospel, you may not know why you're walking through that suffering. But you know what it's not. If he is willing to give his son for you to pay for your sins and rise from the dead and give you everlasting life, do you understand? It cannot be that he doesn't care for you. Do you see how that meets it right there? You need the gospel. Or the other side of this, is the, the second lie is sometimes it's like, well, the reason why I'm walking through this time of suffering is because I must have done something. 
Or maybe I didn't do something. And it's kind of this grand karma of kind of getting what you deserve. But notice this. In the gospel, if you are in Christ, no suffering is punitive. In other words, no suffering is a penalty. Do you understand? On the cross, when Jesus died, he said it is finished, and that means it's done. You are not paying for your sins anymore. It is fulfilled. And in fact, Scripture goes on to say, actually, suffering is actually a way that God permits and allows and works to actually train us. Romans 5 says this, This is incredible. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, for a Christian, suffering, it's not wasted if handled properly. It can actually make you into the person God intends you to be, a person of great depth and poise and stability. But you need the gospel. You need to know how the rescue from your exile because of your sin and the homecoming into God's presence, how remembering God's faithfulness there preaches a better word than your present circumstances. How the gospel speaks a better word than you would speak to yourself in the midst of your self-loathing. The path to joy is found through embracing the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another. Uh, I mean, why do we gather in city groups? Why do we gather together as a community here on Sunday? Like, it's to work that into our lives because we don't quite yet believe it, right? We do and yet we don't. I do and yet you don't. The telos of joy the path to joy. And then this is, you know, if, if it ever gets any better, this is, the, this is the wonderful one. Organizing towards joy, sustained joy. Verses 44 to 47, do you know what they're doing? <laughs> After this momentous ceremony, they're organizing, they're planning around regular offerings and contributions and tithes for the worship of this God. At verse 44, men are appointed to gather in the fruits and the tithes to support the work of those who serve at the temple. Verse 45, we see Levites and priests performing the services as well as the gatekeepers and singers. And here's what we see. <laughs> Listen, we, we so live in a time in which any institution is just like, we just don't trust it. I don't think there's any value in it. But do you know what they're doing here? They are organizing so that week after week, they can sustain their joy in the joyful presence of God. And here's what that means practically today. It means this. This gathering, it's for your joy. Like, you know, the the first worship set, when our worship leaders were up here, they're planning the last couple weeks, thinking about what are we going to sing? It's for your joy. Or how about this? The the tech team in the back, who we hear week after week, who we never see, right? They're pushing buttons, doing things I don't know what to do. That's why I'm not back there, right? They're back there. They're there for your joy. 
you know, the organization of Redeemer City, this church, we are, what we're doing here, we're trying to carefully gather around qualified leaders in which financial contributions and counting are rendered, in which worship is planned and organized, and the reading of God's Word and the hearing it proclaimed are for what? Our sustained joy. And I mean, let's be honest, after a pandemic in which it was hard to gather, like, is there any more reason why we're just more depressed than ever? I mean, because we haven't been able to gather. And here's the deal. (laughs) This joy, it just, it's not meant to stay here. You know, verse 43, it says, uh, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You know, I guarantee you, uh, those Cubs fans on (laughs) November 3rd, 2016, when the Cubs win, what were they doing? They were filling their Twitter feeds. They were filling their Insta faces. But I mean, it was, they could not hold it in. It's just, how can you? And Leslie Newbegin um, he has this moment where he talks about how when the gospel hit in the first century, when it landed, he talks about it being like a nuclear fallout, but in the best possible way, he calls it an explosion of joy. Why? Because God has rescued us from our sin and made a way for us to be in his presence in relationship to him. And how can you hold that in? In other words, it can't stay here. It has to go out to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family members, so they would know this joy that's found in Him. Well, hey, let's pray. Father, um, thank you uh, for just news that is worth celebrating. Uh, news that is worth um, an eruption of joy. That you've come after us in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, help us with our hearts who are half-hearted, who run after lesser things. And may we find our rest and our joy in you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.